0: Somebody said to me, he goes, well, this is way too simple. How is it that nobody's figured this stuff out before? And I said, you know, I get that a lot. And the, the story that I kind of remember is a pilot patented putting wheels on luggage in 1972. The patent expired in 1992. And all of a sudden, everybody got wheels on luggage. And you, it's really impossible to find luggage without wheels these days. But there was a time in which we all carried our luggage and we didn't have wheels on it. So let that wash over you for a second. We actually put a man on the moon in 1969 before we put wheels on luggage. Did we not know what a wheel was? So yeah, it's simple. I get it. But you know, sometimes the simple stuff is really difficult to come by.
1: And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller Travis.
2: Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is Kate Meese, Executive Director of the Local Government Commission, and host of our regular monthly series on smart growth and livable communities where we discuss ways we can create equitable communities that provide better housing, transportation, and economic opportunities for all residents. Today, as our guest, we are honored to have with us Joe Minicozzi. Joe Minicozzi is an urban planner imagining new ways to think about and visualize land use, urban design, and economics. As the founding principal of Urban Three, Joe's work breaks down the relationship between tax and land use policies. Joe's establishing new conversations among the broad sectors of urban planning, economics, tax policy, real estate, and design to creatively address the challenges of urbanization. Urban3's extensive studies and lectures have crossed from over 30 states in the U.S., as well as Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. In 2017, Joe was recognized by Plan Edison as one of the 100 most influential urbanists of all time. Joe, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Oh, thanks for having me.
2: So Joe, one of the major challenges against smart growth development is the belief that local governments who actually rely heavily on property and sales tax to fund services have to fight to attract big box stores, auto dealerships, and large sprawling housing developments. Before we get to the efficacy of this strategy, can you speak to how local governments have become so dependent on growth and most troubling, inefficient growth?
0: Well, I think what I've kind of noticed is, is that we've been in these patterns of needing more money to pay for services, to grow our communities, which is true. Any business wants to grow and you want to grow your revenues. But if you have a model of development that is essentially financially untenable, no amount of new growth or adding to that is going to make it pay itself out. So it's sort of a Ponzi scheme. I don't want to use that term lightly, but it's probably the most simple way to, to get get one's head around it. When I first started doing this work with you all back, I mean, was this, we were talking a number of years ago, we were in the middle of the recession. And what was interesting to me is that every community was broke. Well, they were all broke because no one was building new housing. So if you can't afford yourself when the music stops, when all of a sudden you don't get permits, that should be a clear indicator that your financial model doesn't work. And that was the thing that was kind of perplexing to me is how are people not noticing this? Does that make sense?
2: That does make sense. And it's fascinating to see that what has been such a prevalent strategy that we haven't been able to cue into the fact that it really isn't working. So Many of your studies focus on the difference between these large, big box type stores that many local governments are fighting to attract with tax deals and other incentives. And what you're finding is that actually it's the smaller if you look at it on a per acre basis, it's the downtown mixed use development that actually performs better. And so we're really spending our tax dollars in the wrong place in terms of incentives, but we're also underutilizing our land in terms of the revenue we can get back in. So can you talk a little bit about a couple of examples where you have found that to be true?
0: Pretty much everywhere we go, we find that to be true. The example that I I liked the most was uh, in Durango, Colorado, because it's a fairly isolated economic model. It's not connected to any other city. So it's really out out there, 26,000 people in pretty remote part of Colorado. But we compared um, a couple of businesses, a bookstore and a coffee shop on Main Street to the Walmart. And on a per acre basis, the Walmart was producing about an acre, while those two businesses of the Durango Coffee Shop and Maria's Bookstore were producing about $22,700. So $1,800 for the Walmart, $22,700 for the small businesses. That's in county property taxes. In retail taxes per acre, Walmart was producing about $152,000 while the bookstore and the coffee shop were producing five times that at 560 or 556,000. And then when you look at the jobs, the Walmart had about 15 jobs per acre, and those two businesses had 233 jobs per acre. So in every metric, those little businesses were winning. But it also shows how we're not asking those questions. We're not going out and talking to those businesses because they don't have an advocacy position. They don't have the time to lobby to get their needs met where the Walmart will do that. And this isn't, I tell people don't hate the player, hate the game. Don't fixate on Walmart or target or whatever else realize that these are retail industries that have figured out their business model. And it's based off the loopholes in our policies. So if I tax you on value, there's a perverse incentive to build a low value building where those two businesses that coffee shop and, the bookstore; those are local folks. They're going to put more time and money into their buildings because that's part of their community. I presented at the International Association of Tax Assessing Officers, like a whole conference full of assessors, which uh, makes a Smart Growth conference feel like Burning Man by comparison. This was like the the most rigorous, square, math-driven presentation I've ever or conference I've ever been to. But the head of Walmart was there, and he presented spreadsheet after spreadsheet on how cheap his buildings are i'm in the back of the room watching this all go down and i'm like well this is brilliant he's getting all of his tax bills lowered in one meeting how smart is that you know the assessors don't care if you build a low value building it's going to be low value period it's that simple so i went to the up to the microphone during question and answer and i asked him i said mr Terrell." what's the useful life of one of your buildings? And he immediately shot back 15 years. We'll be out of that building in 15 years, maybe 20. But our job is to design a building that depreciates as quick as possible, build another one and pick up the depreciation again. So don't hate them for doing that. Realize it's our tax policy. So if in Lancaster, California, their Walmart is literally 100 yards, 200 yards, whatever from the dead Walmart that they just left behind. Yet there's no penalty for that. There's no, that's just our tax model. So we're not charging you for the infrastructure. We're not charging you for the pipe out to that building We're just charging you based on value. Does that make sense?
2: It does. And I think I want to hit on the, the infrastructure piece of this a little more because what you're laying out is the fact that not only can we find more profit in the smaller downtown development, if we look at it per acre, but there's actually costs associated With maintaining these facilities that we're not really thinking about. We found there was a national study by Smart Growth America that looked at smart growth patterns and found that across the nation, they save an average of 38% on upfront construction and infrastructure costs. They save 10% on cost of police, fire and other public services because you're not having to go as far and generate ten times more tax revenue per acre than suburban development. So there are some hidden costs in addition to what's coming in that maybe we may be overinflating the potential revenue we can get from these big box stores, but we're also underestimating the infrastructure cost side of it.
0: Yeah, and very few communities actually do cost out Their patterns to understand it. We're kind of known for a project we did in Lafayette, Louisiana with Chuck Marone using the method that he talks about from in strong towns of netting forward the cost and doing a full replacement reserve of infrastructure. So our parent company is a real estate developer. And when we fix a building, you put an air conditioner on top of it to make it heat and cool. We know that that air conditioner lasts about 10 years and we know that it costs us let's call it 15 years. We know that it cost us $10,000. So we have to figure out 15 years from now, we need another $10,000 to replace that air conditioner. Well, the same is true of roads and pipes and all of that other stuff that when you put that road down, there's a 40 to 50 year useful life of that road. So are you going to have enough money 40 or 50 years from now To pay for that. Now there's a really weird quirk inside our financial regulations of how cities manage themselves. They tend to call roads assets because developers give them the road and they're like a gift. They're really expensive infrastructure, but they're really not. There's, it's technically a liability, but just within the mask of how financial auditing systems work, it basically hides that expense. You don't see it. It's a, this asset ledger, the same way that your computers and your office are assets for your business. But you can sell your computers. You can't pick up your roads in Sacramento and sell them to San Francisco. That's just not going to happen. Those are liabilities. So when you change the financial method and say, okay, let's just look at this as a true cost situation, it gives you a completely different perspective of what your city is and you see how broke you are because no one's saving that kind of money to replace things. And even if you have an impact fee, well, that just gets the people who just walked in the door today. It doesn't cover the cost of all the people that got here. Before nineteen eighty two, when you adopted the impact fees, so it really is a wake up call for a lot of people to understand this stuff. And, and digging back into the uh, Smart Growth report, you know all that data that Strategic Economics did. I think with that report, Doctor Bruchelle and Rutgers University and Smart Cost of Sprawl document from near two thousand. That's great math that has it. But this even goes back to the Nixon administration with the first Cost of Sprawl document that came out in nineteen seventy three. This is all data that we've all had sitting around us. It's just very infrequent when people actually just use it.
2: Absolutely. And I think one thing that we should drill down a little more on, you you talked about how we need to revise and rethink the way we look at our assets and our liabilities. And we've been talking about using a, a per acre metric. And I'd love you to jump in a little more on why it's so important to think about our our land and think about the revenue we're bringing in or the cost on a per acre metric and how that really has not been that common.
0: Yeah, it's kind of funny. It's it's one of the most simple things to explain to people. When we look at cars, we don't talk about cars on a, on a miles per tank basis. If we did, I'd be like, hey, my Ford pickup truck gets 650 miles per tank. And you'd say to me, you know, you know, Joe, look, that's, it's got a 40-gallon tank on it, of course, it's going to get a lot of miles. But the Prius gets 50 miles per gallon. Your truck only gets 15 miles per gallon. So the Prius is better, right? So we we judge our car's efficiency based on the gallon unit because all tanks are different sizes. Yet when we talk about real estate, we talk about that Walmart produces $220,000 in property taxes. It's like, well, yeah, but it took 34 acres to get there. So some states actually have growth boundaries. I'm thinking of Oregon, most of California at this point. And so that container of land is all that you have. So those are the acres that you have. So it really behooves you all to really understand the per acre valuation, production, whatever. So you can compare things in an apples to apples manner. I remember I was doing, I can't remember where I was doing a presentation and somebody said to me, goes, well, this is, this is way too simple. How is it that nobody's figured this stuff out before? And I said, you know, I get that a lot. And the story that I kind of remember is a pilot patented putting wheels on luggage in 1972. The patent expired in 1992. Then all of a sudden, everybody got wheels on luggage. And you, it's really impossible to find luggage without wheels these days. But there was a time in which we all carried our luggage and we didn't have wheels on it. So, so let that wash over you for a second. We actually put a man on the moon in 1969 before we put wheels on luggage. Did we not know what a wheel was? So yeah, it's simple. I get it. But you know, sometimes the simple stuff is really difficult to come by. So we just, we just stick to the per acre methodology. So we understand the, an apples to apples, understanding of real estate.
2: Well, one of the things that you have been so successful at, which I think is why you're getting demand from all over the world to do this work is you've made the message seem simple through your your messaging. And you think you are really powerful in telling a story that people can relate to and understand. And so on that end, I'm wondering what you have found to resonate across parties, political lines, across different types of communities, whether rural or urban, and certainly you've worked in different countries all over the globe. So what are some key talking points that have cut across all those differences?
0: Well, I think you hit on it with the story. As humans, we've, got, we've traveled through millennia telling stories. We've passed on oral traditions. The narrative of which we tell methods of morality through our religion are all stories. And so to not use that, to not make a story or make it entertaining when you're delivering information, you're essentially making it difficult to reach your audience to whom you want to communicate. Also, as a speaker... You have to be willing to check your own biases at the curb. We all have them. And what I find is you know, very frustrating in watching other people trying to communicate is that they're unwilling to let go of their own religious beliefs in this stuff. And this could be on the left or the right. That is, we end up talking past each other if we start delivering information with our own coded language. So I never use words that, that can feel loaded And I kind of maybe learned this lesson by talking to my parents who are on the far right of the spectrum. I grew up in upstate New York, which is essentially Trump territory, even though that whole part of the state is essentially floated and supported by New York City. And that was a very valuable lesson for me that we all had our own language of how things operated without really understanding how we're connected. So it never really helped me to go off to design school and come back and talk about design of cities to my parents because they just didn't really have the interest to learn my language. But the more I would try to find ways to speak with them and as opposed to speaking at them, I just sort of developed that, that method, you know, and it's just, it worked for me I and mean, it seems to work with audiences where we present and we try to make it simple. We don't use a lot of jargon. I'm not, not in front of the audience to show how smart I am. I'm, I'm there to like tell a story and, and try to See if the, the message resonates. Does that make sense?
2: It does. Great communicator as always. So I think your points come across loud and clear. One of the things I am curious to hear your thoughts on is, you know, you've already talking about you've already spoken to the fact that our system for funding our services needs to be revisited and is broken in many ways. One other potential factor is the fact that a lot of people are increasingly doing online shopping. So can you talk about the impact on both our revenue of this move towards online shopping and also anything we should be doing to future-proof our revenue streams and rethink those retail spaces?
0: retail has been tremendously impacted by online sales there there's a shift happening in our markets that I don't know if we can fathom what that change is going to truly affect communities and it's it's happening right now all around us we're learning that but um you know in California cities operate off retail taxes same with Colorado when you get to um states like Alabama or Arkansas they're almost wholly operating off retail taxes. So usually those kinds of communities, when you have a recession, when people stop spending money, they they don't buy a boat or a new car or stuff like that. They don't make large purchases. All of a sudden they lose a tremendous amount of revenue and you can't afford your city. It's a really weird way to fund a city. So one of the terms that I really like in planning is called the logical rational nexus, which is a legal term for basically saying there needs to be a connection between policy and impact. So if I have dumpsters on my property, it's common knowledge, it's market analysis, all of this stuff that if you put a dumpster up, it's going to affect the properties adjacent to it because all of a sudden there's a visible eyesore across the street. But if you buffer the dumpster, it's going to decrease that impact, right? So there's a logical rational nexus between needing a buffer and screening a dumpster. Well, the same is true or should be true about retail tax. And I think the question to ask ourselves is what's the connection between retail and running a city. And there really isn't one. So why are we running our cities off that retail cash stream? And it's really because cities are broke and they needed a cash revenue. So they just grab something like retail, but it makes no sense. Like why should me going out and buying, I don't know, a six pack of soda? Why should that be how I have to pay for my city? So I think we need to start asking other questions. Like why aren't we charging a tax that covers the cost of all the municipal services that we drive out to that property. Therefore, those parcels of land that are further and further out at the edge, they're carrying that cost of all that infrastructure that we have to add to that property. So back to that retail purchase, when I, when I do buy that six pack of soda, it's not a stretch of, of the imagination that I'm paying for the aluminum in the cans and all the product inside the cans, right? So why isn't that true of our cities? And it's really bizarre because we're essentially operating off 17th century tax policy without thinking through that we have crazy stuff like computers and Excel spreadsheets. We could figure out the cost of all that stuff and just send a different kind of tax bill.
2: We're certainly going to need to because if you look at our infrastructure, we have a huge unmet demand and a, a backlog of projects. I just was looking at the most recent report that came out nationally about our our state of infrastructure. And it said we had a $836 billion backlog on our infrastructure costs. So we certainly can't afford to do the same thing moving forward. And we're going to need to make some pretty disruptive changes just to meet that backlog. So unfortunately we are running out of time but I want to give you a final minute to share with us what you're most excited about what you see as most promising in trends moving forward.
0: There's a lot going on that's exciting. I think I think the changes in technology to be able to, to visualize this data people not having a fear of finance you know when i first started doing this stuff it was just like oh that's like hocus pocus and in freaky finance voodoo but people are starting to realize that that this is where the rubber meets the road, that we need to be able to pay for this stuff. I think there's going to be a lot of challenges going forward um, in California with Prop 13, which sort of spread like a plague across the country, that that people adopted these measures and propositions to limit their tax production. And now the pipers come due. You know, We've gone through two generations now with a limited revenue source. And you need to figure out a way to to work with that. And I think that's going to be the conversation that needs to happen. At a national level, we're seeing this kind of national temper tantrum going on where there's going to be a huge fight for the infrastructure plan and how that's going through. And we're either going to repeat the same mistakes that we've been doing for the last 50 years, or this is going to be a tipping point. I don't know how that's going to shake out. You know, I wish there was a little bit more humane conversation at a national level, but states have to step up to the plate as well. So I don't know what's going to happen in California or Oregon or Michigan or Montana or the 12 other states that adopted something similar to Prop 13, but, but something has to change.
2: I agree. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us and thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time in Infinite Earth Radio.